people care about their car buying journey, provide your customers with an unparalleled chat and digital retailing experience with Goobagoo. Whether your customers are online or in-store, Goobagoo is there. See the magic at Goobagoo.com. That's G-U-B-A-G-O-O.com. Welcome to Daily Drive for Thursday, January 26, 2023. I'm Jake Neer, coming to you from the Automotive News Retail Forum in Dallas, ahead of the NADA show. I'm in for Jamie Butters today. And I'm Kellen Walker. Today on the show, Toyota has picked its next CEO. Tesla's net income surges in Q4, and the Renault-Nissan Alliance will reboot with five projects. Plus, we'll hear from the Alliance for Automotive Innovation CEO, John Bozella, who reacts to Senator Joe Manchin's new bill that would no longer tie the effective date of EV battery sourcing requirements to Treasury's release of proposed guidance. From my perspective, I think the IRS and the Treasury Department are moving as quickly as they possibly can to get this done. And my sense is probably in the March timeframe, we're going to have this rule. Let's run through all the news you need to know to keep up in the auto industry. Toyota Motor has tapped Lexus chief Koji Sato to be the Japanese automaker's next president and CEO. Akio Toyota, the grandson of the company's founder, is stepping up to be the company's new chairman. The changes take effect on April 1st. As part of the shuffle, current chairman Takeshi Uchiyamada will step aside from that role but retain a seat on the board. Uchiyamada is known as the father of the Prius for his work in developing the popular hybrid vehicle. The reorganization answers a long-standing question about succession for Akio Toyota. He became CEO in 2009 and presided over a tumultuous period of challenges and expansion that included the 2009 financial crisis, a global recall scandal, and the 2011 Japan earthquake, as well as Toyota becoming clearly the world's largest automaker. Tesla expects to grow deliveries at 37% this year. That's sharply lower than previous projections of annual growth around 50% for the foreseeable future. The automaker saw sales increase globally by 40% for 2022. It slashed prices earlier this month amid expectations of an economic slowdown in the U.S. and greater competition in global markets. Net profit for the fourth quarter was just under $3.7 billion dollars. That's compared with $2.3 billion a year earlier. Tesla said in its fourth quarter shareholder letter that a 50% growth rate continues to be its long-term target, but it says a variety of factors would affect that number year by year. Hyundai says it'll invest $8.5 billion in 2023 as it moves to electrify more of its fleet. It's a push to meet rising consumer demand for cleaner cars. The South Korean automaker says it'll spend the money primarily on research and development and on building a plant in the U.S. The company increased dividends today in an unusual move for the automaker after operating profit more than doubled in the October through December quarter. Operating profit for the quarter more than doubled from a year earlier. Net profit tripled on a 24% climb in revenue. The profit growth looked particularly strong as Hyundai booked one-off costs in the same period a year earlier. Quarterly sales jumped 24% from the previous year. And Renault and Nissan plan to rejuvenate their two decades-old cooperation with a range of industrial projects. They'll also come alongside an impending agreement to rebalance capital ties to improve a partnership 
that has become tense. The partners are set to work on five projects at first. That's according to people familiar with the situation who spoke with Bloomberg News. One of those projects involves India, where the companies operate a plant making small cars, engines, and gearboxes. And another partnership focusing on commercial vehicles. It's a three-way pack that also includes junior partner Mitsubishi Motors. It signals the companies see a joint future for the alliance that had to be pieced together again after the 2018 arrest of former leader Carlos Ghosn. And those are today's headlines. Coming up, a conversation with the Alliance for Automotive Innovation CEO, John Bozella, about the confusion over EV tax credits and Senator Joe Manchin's brand new bill to make changes to them. That's next on Daily Drive. People care about their car buying experience, and so do we. Provide your customers with an unparalleled chat and digital retailing experience with Goobagoo. Goobagoo is the leader in conversational commerce for the automotive industry. Our fully managed live messaging services instantly connect consumers to dealers anytime and anywhere through live chat, text, video, and more. Integrated with our fully managed chat, Goobagoo's virtual retailing platform enables consumers to buy cars online directly from the dealership's website through multiple channels. We are constantly improving the retailing experience and currently have over 100 integrations with CRMs, DMSs, and third-party applications. Goobagoo transforms the traditional car buying process into a modern, transparent, and seamless experience. Available 24-7, 365, our highly trained chat specialists are there to help. See it for yourself at goobagoo.com. That's G-U-B-A-G-O-O dot com. Welcome back to Daily Drive. I'm Jake Neer with Kellen Walker. We talked yesterday on the show about Senator Joe Manchin's new proposal to make immediate changes to the new EV tax credits that he himself helped engineer. The West Virginia Democrats' bill would direct the U.S. Treasury Department to immediately stop issuing $7,500 consumer tax credits for EVs that do not meet strict critical mineral and battery component requirements. Our own Jamie Butters and Automotive News Washington, D.C. reporter Audrey LaForest spoke with Alliance for Automotive Innovation. CEO John Bozella about the proposal during our LinkedIn Live event earlier today. Here's a piece of that conversation. John, first, let's look at the latest news. Uh, Senator Manchin's legislation introduced yesterday. Isn't this kind of symbolic of the widespread frustration when even the guy who crafted these rules isn't happy with them? Yeah, I'd say so. Uh, you know, it, it appears maybe Senator Manchin wants a do-over. And wouldn't we, and wouldn't we all? Uh, look, there there is a lot of confusion already in the marketplace. The new tax credits are significantly different, and they do serve a different purpose. A purpose, by the way, I agree with, and we can get into that a little bit more. But what we should be doing right now is reducing consumer confusion about availability of tax credits, not adding to it. John, and then, you know, whether Manchin's bill passes or not, I mean, it's probably unlikely, but never say never in Washington. You know, once the EV battery sourcing requirements do take effect, what's that going to mean for vehicle eligibility? 
Yeah, it's a good question. We don't fully know the answer to that, but we can imagine that we're probably at the high point right now with regard to vehicle availability for the tax credit or vehicle eligibility, I should say, for the tax credit, because the mineral and battery component requirements are significant and and onerous. And, And by the way, they're very complex. And I can appreciate why the Treasury Department and the Internal Revenue Service is taking the time they need to get it right. In short, a vehicle that might qualify today for a $7,500 tax credit might qualify after those rules come out for maybe half of that credit or maybe none of that credit. Uh, And so that's really, from a consumer perspective, what we might be facing. Absolutely. And, you know, as as you kind of alluded to, you know, the, the EV battery sourcing rules, those get tougher each year. I believe it's a 10% increase each year in terms of the value that has to go into that. You know, so so from your view, what, if anything, are automakers doing to possibly try to secure tax credits in the future, especially when it does get so much tougher to meet? Well, first, I mean, let's talk about where the industry is and is going even before the uh, IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act was passed, you know, mid last year. Already, what you see across the industry, and Jamie, you referenced this, significant investment in the transformation of the industry from a, a propulsion perspective. So right now, there are 86 separate EV models or zero emission vehicle models in the marketplace today. Uh, I would estimate that that will grow to 120 or so just in the next couple of years by, say, model year 2025. So you're seeing investment, you're seeing momentum, you're seeing more vehicles coming into the marketplace. But you're also seeing already a shift in the EV supply chain. Uh, Joint ventures being announced, it seems, almost daily with regard to the production of battery components and the like. And so that shift is already underway, a shift that is a shift not only in the marketplace, but in the industrial base. So that's happening. The real question that you're asking, Audrey, is how quickly can it happen? Right. That's that's ultimately the question. I do think that, you know, again, the premise behind the IRA that we ought to make sure that our EV supply chain is not dependent on China is a very important premise. There's no question about that. But it also needs to be balanced with other policy goals. Right. Making sure that we do effectively secure our Uh, industrial base, that we do do this in a way that allows the country to meet its climate goals. And so, you know, to me, the important thing about this is getting the balance right. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, in terms of that question of can they ramp up fast enough, you know, can they adjust their supply chains fast enough, you know, not just to reduce reliance perhaps on certain countries or foreign supply chains, but also, you know, to potentially you know, have the EV tax credit, you know, have their customers be able to access that credit, to have their vehicles be able to access that credit. You know, I think that's one of the things that my understanding of Senator Manchin's bill was, you know, to address the delay, to make sure that, you know, the EV battery requirements specifically aren't further delayed. I don't know if you can speak a bit more to that. Yeah, I mean, again, I I can't speak to what was you know, in the senator's mind as he, you know, developed and, and introduced the bill. 
I've certainly seen his letter to the Treasury Secretary and his, his news release about the bill. Uh, and again, as I said, I agree with his overall goal, which is to reduce our dependence on, on China you know, and other nations that are really not our trading partners as it relates to uh, the EV supply chain so, and raw materials and other critical components. Uh, so again, I agree with that. You know, what's a bit confusing about the bill is, you know, what the Treasury Department's doing is I think what we would all expect, whether we're taxpayers or potential consumers of an electric vehicle or auto manufacturers or dealers, and that is that we want the, the Treasury Department and the IRS to get this right. It's incredibly complex and very challenging. And the types of data that are required to develop a perspective about what complies and what's eligible doesn't really exist yet. Uh, and so we have to build this. And so I, I don't think my perception is, I don't, I don't think that there is any purposeful delay. I think from my perspective, I think the IRS and the Treasury Department are moving as quickly as they possibly can to get this done. And my sense is probably in the March timeframe, we're going to have this rule. But it's been so challenging. Government needs to get the balance right. But uh, it's also just for business, and we're talking about these long-term investments, right, that, that shape communities for uh, generations, you know, these multi-billion dollar investments, they, they need to know what the rules are going to be. We had, you know, the, we had one system in place that seemed like it was pretty solid, maybe would get expanded. People knew what the parameters, what to expect. Suddenly, you know, it was so, came together so quickly. The Inflation Reduction Act, we had new rules, kicked out the other cars, and now we still we're still learning kind of what the, the, the teeth are and the details are. But then to the, the other point that it, it continues to get steeper and steeper. And then there's a cliff, right? We don't have a plan for what happens after this program. It's, it makes it really, I mean, I guess the automakers are making the investment and the industry is going to transition sort of. What do automakers, what are they telling you, John? Yeah, look, we're trying to reduce confusion as quickly as we can. Right. So the first the first way we need to do that is we need to understand the rules and the IRS and the, and the Treasury Department need to clarify those rules. You know, we've seen white papers and we've seen indications of where they're going. But let's say the rules come out on March 15th. They're effective March 16th. Uh, and so there you have a car that might have been available for a full credit on March 15th might not be available for a credit uh, March 16th or it might be might be avail uh, uh, eligible for a partial credit. It's going to take some time once the rules are finalized even for companies to figure out how to navigate this. Uh, and so that's what we're working on. We need the clarity as quickly as we can. Companies will figure it out as quickly as they can uh, because, you know, let's step back. The credit is important. And the reason the credit's important is because right now, 1% of the U.S. fleet is electrified. 1%. 7% of new vehicle sales are electric. So we've got a long way to go. And what you're seeing in the industry is significant leadership, tremendous investment. And so bets are being placed on this shift. I think those bets are right. The question is, what's the pace? And there is value for a policy that supports access, uh, that helps affordability and addresses other concerns in the marketplace, such as cost, at this stage in the market's development. That's the purpose of the tax credits. Now, this is the policymaker's decision, not mine. 
And so this is what the policymakers have decided. And so let's make sure that we have a tax credit that works. With regard to the complexity that we're talking about, we are where we are. You know, we're not going to change it. And so what we need to do is work with the Treasury, understand the rules, comply with those rules as quickly as we can, and be as clear and transparent as we can with the customer. And that starts with the IRS. One of the things um, that's, you know, created quite some buzz, you know, among dealers, automakers, as well as consumers is, you know, the IRS currently has a list of about 40 models that are potentially eligible, but in that list, they didn't classify the Cadillac Lyric, for example, as an SUV. It's classified as other, and you know that could be sedan or something along those lines. I know this was also an issue that the Alliance had addressed in some of its comments to Treasury, but you know, I'm I'm wondering if you can share how you want that to be resolved. Yeah, this is the uh, when's when's a truck a truck and when's a truck a car. Uh, I, I'm sure uh, dealers uh, who are watching and consumers who are watching saying, well, what's why could there possibly be any confusion, right? You know, uh, a vehicle based on its stance and its towing capacity and its, you know, packaging and its all-wheel drive capability, our truck is a truck. You know, well, one part of the government may think that truck is a truck and another part of the government seems to think that truck might be a car. I do think that this is unfortunate because, again, it adds more confusion in the marketplace uh, in an already complex sort of credit dynamic. I am hopeful that we will see some clarity and some resolution to this. I do think that, you know, there's a recognition uh, among those who are developing the rules that this does need to be clarified. That's the long and short of it. I mean, if as an example, you know, if you go to a customer-facing government website like fueleconomy.gov and you see certain products that are clearly trucks, and then you go to the IRS website and you might see some of those products classified as cars, you know, that's really where the, the confusion comes in. And it is significant from a customer perspective because the credit is currently capped based on the MSRP of the vehicle, but the cap for trucks is $80,000 and that the cap for cars is much lower. And so if I am a truck, but I'm classified as a car and I'm say, you know, in the $60,000 range or I'm above $55,000, you know, now all of a sudden the customer I'm appealing to who's cross shopping my product with another vehicle that is actually classified as a truck, I'm now now I'm creating all this confusion. Wait a minute, right? Think about it from a consumer's perspective. They are looking in a segment at three different manufacturers' products, right? Truck, truck, car. Confusing. John, why do we even have a distinction in yeah. the first place? I mean, I know it, it sort of is like a, a vestige of of cafe when we were trying to protect the domestic. Uh, automakers that were more truck dependent and when the line between cars and trucks was was bigger but I like just because the vehicles cost more then we should I mean if they take up more space they take up more lithium they do more damage to the roads we should give less incentive to that right I don't think it's I you know appreciate your cafe reference by the way it um, uh, I was gonna say it ages you I don't mean it that way but you've been around <laughs> long, if you if if you remember those days uh, you know you, we've both been around a long time Jamie it's a little bit more simple from the policymaker's perspective. Look, in the perfect world, you might say, if our goal is to increase sales of electric vehicles to accomplish national security, economic security, and climate change goals, 
we would want to open the spigot as widely as we could, provide every consumer a $7,500 tax credit, as an example. This was the previous policy with a manufacturer cap of 200,000 units, because when this was first designed, that seemed to be far, far into, into the future. For all sorts of reasons, equity reasons, uh, affordability reasons, government finance reasons, you can imagine that policymakers might want to create a structure that has some limits, i.e., should super high premium luxury vehicles get a tax credit or should millionaires? And so policymakers said no and no. And so that's really what it comes down to. Now, why the difference between a car and a truck? Because if you look at the average transaction price of trucks, they're higher. And the average transaction price of cars is lower. And so the policymaker is saying, okay, let's make sure that we are providing you know, tax credits in the sweet spot of both broad segments. And so that it's, it's, it's really no more complex um, than that, right? You know, for years, I've heard the following argument about EVs. Well, all I see is these tiny little econo boxes. When are you guys going to have SUVs and CUVs and trucks? I'd love to see an electric pickup truck. Wow. If you're on the floor of the DC Auto Show like Audrey and I were the other day, you see them. Mm -hmm. There they are. The Chevy Silverado, the Ford F-150 Lightning, right there on the show floor in the marketplace. If the point of the credit is to encourage demand, let's offer that credit for those products. John Bozella is the CEO of the Alliance for Automotive Innovation. He spoke with our own Jamie Butters and Audrey LaForest earlier today, live on the Automotive News LinkedIn page. You can still catch that full conversation on LinkedIn. That's Daily Drive for today. I'm Jake Neer, in for Jamie Butters. And I'm Kellen Walker. Thanks to our own Hans Grimel for his help on today's podcast. You can get the latest news on EV tax credits, earnings results, and everything happening in the auto industry at autonews.com. Come back tomorrow when we'll join you from the NADA show here in Dallas. If you enjoy the podcast, remember to like, leave a review, and subscribe so you never miss an episode.